Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We've got a big hour coming your way. Uh, Scott Patterson here, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, best-selling author. His latest book is Chaos Kings, How Wall Street Traders Make Billions in the New Age of Crisis, uh, which we seem to be perpetually in. Uh, Senator Langford, last time I saw you, it was, I was in Oklahoma City, and right. it was your home game. And I was on the road because we have a great affiliate out there. Great to see you in New York. Yeah, it's good to see you. How as well. do you fit in when you're here, Mr. Oklahoma? Oh, I just slip in. I, I on, honest to goodness, I get off a plane and get here for about three minutes and go. How do people live like this? Too I, tight. I, it's too, too tight. compressed. I, I, I checked into my hotel room last night and it was like a cruise ship lounge, you know, little tiny cabin uh, right. spot there. And I've never even been on a cruise, but everything here is small, and we're used to Oklahoma where we can stretch out. You get and, a lot uh, where for you your drive money. Your neighbor, and we get crazy things like parking lots. Uh, right. You don't have that here. You have garages. Right. Guess, we have garages yeah. and parking lots. Right. We guy just uh, he, dis- he disappears with your car and he comes back with it. We don't ask any questions. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Senator Langford, right now uh, people are talking about what happened with the debt ceiling yeah. deal. It seems like a compromise. Others think it's the worst thing ever. Uh, do you like what took place? I, I don't. I, I don't like the final product on it. I like the the conversation I like. Uh, we need to have a hard adult conversation. You think they could have gotten a better deal? Well, you know what? Kevin McCarthy's the only one that can really answer that because he's the only one that's actually at the table in the room at that point. I, I feel like we could have because in 2011, I came in as a brand-new House member when Republicans took the House. Democrats had the Senate. Democrats had the White House. We leveraged for the Budget Control Act that actually reduced real spending the next two years in a row. This agreement was a decrease on the increase. So spending goes up next year. Spending goes up the year after that. It goes up the year after that. It's not a decrease in spending at all. It's a decrease of the increase of spending. They say it'll save $1.2 trillion over 10 It could because the, the, the way that they schedule it from CBO, the way they score is they assume Congress is going to raise spending at least to inflation. So Congress never passed anything that said we're going to spend more than now we're reducing it. It's an assumption that CBO says they're going to increase spending at least to inflation. So they're saying this grows government slower than inflation. Of course, under a Biden economy, no one's keeping up with inflation at this point. And right now, like the House is going to be another dogfight to keep sure. it. And the Senate is favored to take it. Uh, feeling right now in June of 2023, about 24. You know, feeling good right now. Uh, obviously, we've got to be able to run through the tape at this point. You know, if we if you talk about uh, two years ago, we were having conversations at the same point, talking about what the uh, 2022 elections are going to be like. We were talking about picking up four or five seats in the Senate, and that didn't happen. People have got to actually show up and vote, and it's got to be engaged, and it's got to be about the candidates that are there. Obviously, it's wide open in the presidential candidates right now as we've got lots of folks that are running, but in the Senate, we'll have the same thing. We've got lots of folks running that are out there, and they've got to actually run good races, and people have got to volunteer and support them. Right. Uh, one area in which Republicans feel pretty good about is Jim Justice getting in in West Virginia. Yeah. He's in double-digit lead almost from the moment he said, I'm in. And Joe Manchin is not even is 50-50 with the Democrats in West right. Virginia, let alone Republicans. Yeah, and, and West Virginia has swung very far towards uh, conservatives. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting just to be able to watch the transition. If you go back just 10 years ago, West Virginia is a strong Democrat state. Now, now it's a strong Republican state. My state in Oklahoma did the same thing about 17 years ago, whereas a strong Democrat state, almost everyone in the state was an elected Democrat. Now almost everyone in the state is an elected Republican. All right, so right now— uh, 
uh, today, James Comer is going to go into a skiff with Senator Grassley, maybe yeah. separately, maybe together. Ranking member Raskin will be there, too. And they've got to see a 1023 form. Right. This 2023 form, you tell me if I'm wrong, is something taken uh, almost dictation from a so-called whistleblower right. who said they a have source. proof, a source, that $5 million went into Joe Biden's pocket from it seems to be the Ukraine situation, where his son obviously was employed in a job he wasn't qualified for with Burisma. So we're going to see where that goes. Uh they want to see, what would you be looking to see, James Comer, what James Comer says? So a couple of things there. It, it's what James Comer, when he comes out, is going to have to report out. He's not going to be able to walk out with the document, hand it to everybody and say, here's what it that is. That was the point of taking it. Right. And, and so he goes into a, a closed area, gets a chance to be able to review it, what they call reviewing in camera, so they get a chance to look at it but not take it out from there and to be able to evaluate what was the accusation. What's interesting is this person, this source, was saying this is my concern, uh, that everyone seems to agree that there was a concern that he was actually swapping dollars for his family for policy changes on it. Obviously, Joe Biden at that same time dealing with Ukraine was talking about he was going to go in, get their attorney general fired, he was going to make a stand for all these things. So we've seen his public statements on that. What will be the interesting thing is, what is James Comer to come out talking about what was in that document? And the second thing is, FBI has to, has to answer here because when they had a document dealing with Russia and President Trump, they called, they called at that point newly elected President Trump in and candidate Trump in and said, hey, we want to give you a defensive briefing on this accusation that was made that we don't have any verification for all those now infamous doc, documents out there. And so we don't have any verification, but we want to know people are saying basically they were doing a closet little interview of the president without interviewing him to try to figure out if they could build anything else. Did they do that to the vice president when he was vice president Biden? Did they do a defensive briefing when someone came in and had information? This as is well? three years ago. Right. So. Uh, and keep in mind, too, James Comey went down to his uh, car afterwards and typed up quickly Donald Trump's reaction right. when he was pulled over. And Trump said, really? Are you threatening me? It was an interview. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, it was like a criminal investigation that they were trying to be able to do to gather information. So we need to find out what, what happened to uh, Biden at that point. Did, were they doing that same kind of defensive briefing with him? To, one thing concerns me is I've never seen more whistleblowers come forward with, with credentials, four separate FBI agents. Right. And they all say their lives have been ruined since they've come forward. I thought we had a situation in place. The whistleblowers were protected. I, for one, was a, was a big uh, critic of Snowden. said, we have situation. If you want to come forward, why are you going to Russia and Hong Kong? And right. But now uh, it's hard to make that case when you see these, these bonded law enforcement officials whose lives have been ruined, one of which is Steve Friend. He came forward and said, listen, we don't need a SWAT team to arrest this January 6th uh, suspect, and they basically told him to step aside. Here's what he said to me about two hours ago about this situation, Cut 17. It seems like he's going to have the opportunity to view this source reporting document, which is essentially a memorialization uh, of a meeting between an FBI agent and a confidential human source or an informant. And uh, from what we've seen in the reporting, it's going to pertain to alleged bribery on behalf of Joe Biden when he was vice president of the United States. So then we'll see where we go from there. This is like a couple of days since James Comey came forward and basically said right wing has a fever, uh, you know, making up this fantasy that the FBI has a right uh, anti right wing bias. Is he not self-aware to understand how really defamed and he has become? Uh, it, it, Does it blow you away? No, it, it's painful. And I'll tell you what's painful to me is when I talk to FBI agents that are in the field who are some really great folks doing very important work for the country, 
they're incredibly frustrated with what's happening in the D.C. bureaucracy, that these folks are becoming political puppets of the Democrat Party rather than just following the law. We need people going after gangs. We need people going after uh, criminal activities. We need going after human trafficking. All these things that we desperately need the FBI to be able to do, it seems like the D.C. office is getting distracted. What can we do to advance our political objectives rather than actually going after criminal investigations and treating everyone equal under the law? Everyone still can't understand why Hunter Biden, very obvious on, on things like federal firearms violations when you lie on a, on a federal form that you're not a drug user. Before when, your investigation. When clearly he's a drug user, and the investigation seems to never end. And that's a – you know, I look at that as a minor thing. You know, it's, it's a thing. It matters, especially when it matters so much, Democrats, especially with guns and But that possession. was obvious. That was obvious. So is the tax evasion obvious. Right. Where's all this money? Right. One thing is pretty clear. Millions of dollars are passing through. But this guy has no money. He can he can fly in a private jet to uh, to plead in front of a judge not to support pay, pay child support for a kid he had out of wedlock, and at the same time you see millions of dollars transacting and you don't know where there is and you don't know how Joe Biden's house got so big. The other major story, and I want to, if we can, talk about 2024 after this, is what China's been doing. Right. You know, they got within 150 yards of our destroyer. They got 400 feet of one of our fighter jets. We know that they stormed a, uh, a military base over in Alaska. We know their words and their deeds show an aggression. And all we get from our uh, Secretary of Defense is we would like to talk and de-escalate. We don't want a problem. How is that interpreted? Well, I would say it's interpreted the same way that Afghanistan was interpreted through that disastrous withdrawal, same way that we're interpreted in every other area. This administration is seen as being weak and trying to be nice to the rest of the world. The rest of the world needs to see a strong America. The United States is not the world's policeman, but we are like the grown-up on the playground. Uh, there are lots of lots of chaos there, and it's different when we're actually present and strong in the middle of this. And when the United States looks weak, the rest of the world is going to test us, and China is most certainly testing us right and now. And they also want us to not go ahead and start having a lack of tech trade between the countries. They want to, they see a, a, a decoupling out there, despite what our CEOs are saying. And to a degree, our trade evidently, if I'm to believe the numbers, has never been more um, vigorous right. between the two nations. But we're talking about decoupling. We have the CHIPS Act out there. There's even, The Apple is beginning to pull out. Nike is beginning to pull out there. Every single company should pull out, Brian. Every, every company that's an American company that's uh, producing in China, if they're selling to China what they're producing, that's fine. But if they plan on selling that product back to the United States or anywhere else in the world, While I they manufacture it. Correct. I, I would encourage them to manufacture somewhere else because that country in China, that communist nation, sh- showed during COVID – that if they want something that's being produced that's going to get shipped out to the United States, like for PPE during that time during COVID, they just took it over and said, I know you're producing this for the United States, but we want it. We're going to take it over. Everyone needs to know that's a communist nation. That is not a free market economy. They will do what they want. And whether it's chips, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's critical minerals, we cannot depend on a communist nation. What have we done to do that since this pandemic is over? So a couple of things have actually moved. Uh, Number one is I'm trying to make it very clear to folks uh, from all the things that I'm saying is if you saw what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine and there was an immediate cutoff of all economics there and of all companies that were uh, running in Russia. I'm letting every company know and it made it clear. And I've actually put legislation out there to be able to say, if you saw what happened with Russia and Ukraine, understand that if China invades Taiwan, the exact same thing is going to happen. So if your company 
is dependent on manufacturing from China. If China invades Taiwan, which who knows if they will, but the day that they do, your company will be cut off coming back to the United States. So you better make other other arrangements to put manufacturing in other locations. We've also got to change our tax laws. The Biden administration continues to be able to push uh, against American companies actually moving back here to the United States based on what they're trying to do with tax laws. Our tax laws should incentivize more manufacturing coming here rather than actually going to China. But we did do that with the tax revamp. We, we tried to We tried to onshore bring a lot of that back. Did it work? It did. No, it, it was significant. And I would say intellectual property from all over the world, including from China, came back to the United States and was in very significant numbers. That's the big boost that we saw in the economy. We even, cut of the corporate tax. That's correct. It was a cut of corporate taxes and also a change in how intellectual property is actually housed. And this gets way in the weeds on this. But if intellectual property is actually stored overseas rather than here, it used to be a higher tax rate. There used to be things that we called it versions. You hear President Obama all the time bemoaning American companies moving overseas. That has absolutely gone to zero since the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 because it now encourages American companies to come here right. with all their intellectual property, not offshore. It was just so disturbing to see those CEOs like Elon Musk and Jamie Dimon go over there and pretend as if Elon Musk came out and said, I don't want to decouple. And Jamie Dimon says, let me be the broker between our nations. No thanks. All yeah. right. We got it, this. It is a communist nation. People need to remember that. Right. When we come back, we talk 2024 with Senator James Langford, kind enough to come in studio. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we're back right now with Senator Lankford. Uh, Senator, it's really intriguing on the right, not on the left. We know Joe Biden's going to be the nominee unless he drops out. Kamala Harris, he's going to run with, so there's no drama there. On the right, we're going to have this week Governor Chris Christie and Mike Pence jump in. Senator Governor Sununu probably shortly. Governor, uh, the governor of South Dakota, North Dakota too. Your your feeling about Donald Trump's thirty point lead in almost every poll right now? Yeah, there's, obviously he's the former vice uh, former president. Excuse me. So he uh, he is the in the poll position in every single poll that's out there. He is the one that's in the race. He's the one with the name ID. He's the one with the loyalty. From a whole lot of folks, but there are a lot of people that are actually engaging. They don't jump into a race if they don't feel like there's not something there as a lane. No one runs through a presidential gauntlet just for fun in this because it's it's a painful, long, difficult experience where they've got to be able to do a lot of work and a lot of travel to be able to get there. So obviously there's a whole sea of other folks that say, I don't think that his numbers will stay that high. Obviously, the president's going to be very clear that, yeah, they will stay that high. So we'll watch this. First first debates are coming up in August. It'll actually be on Fox. Uh, so these debates will come up in August. Then it'll start accelerating from there. Governor Haley won CNN last night. She did good. She was treated with respect, right. uh, which I think is important. And she's also very good. I mean, she knows good international affairs. She knows her stuff. Yeah. And and she's a, good, a really good governor, a successful governor. Husband's in the military, has a sense of what the mood is. But t- Senator Tim Scott. Um, he just is one of the finest people you will meet. Oh, absolutely. And smart. And he knows ta- he'll bore you with taxes. He knows so much detail. He'll get into uh, police uh, uh, law, law um, excuse me. Um, he'll get into criminal justice reform right. in detail. So here is Tim Scott saying the most questionable thing. Uh, do you think this is a good move that Senator Tim Scott has agreed to do? I'm going on The View on Monday. <laughs> because I think it's time for a conservative with a backbone to look those ladies in the eyes and say, you do not have to be an exception to succeed in America. You can be the rule and succeed in America. 
So is this a good move? Hundred percent. It's why good. it's it's a good move. So a couple of things on this. One is you're right. Tim Scott's the most decent human being you'll ever meet. Super smart. Uh, President Trump talks all the time about the tax uh, piece that he passed, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that he signed as president. But what people forget is Tim is one of the people that wrote that bill. There's a big difference between signing a bill and writing a bill. Uh, Tim Scott was the one of the lead writers of that bill. He's very engaged in policy, knows his stuff on this. But for a conservative to go on the view, that actually takes a message to people to say, hey, we're not crazy people. We're people that just love our children, love our nation, love our community, want national security. That's actually normal American beliefs on this. And so he's actually stepping into an environment that's not typical for conservatives and saying, let's go win the argument in a winsome way. I don't, I don't have to go out anger somebody to go win right. the argument. I'm going to go persuade somebody. Here, here's, this is what set the table for his appearance. He's one of these guys who, you know, he's like Clarence Thomas, black Republican who believes in pulling yourself by your bootstraps, rather than, to me, understanding the systemic racism that African Americans face in this country and other minorities. He doesn't get it, neither does uh, Clarence. Is it true, Senator Langford, that Senator Tim Scott yeah, doesn't you know get what? it? Just as a black American, he doesn't understand <laughs> what it's like to be what a black American. I, it, it's just amazing to me. Tim Scott also tells a story about being being pulled over multiple times just for being black. And he explains this is what's really happening in America. He understands full well what's happening to America, but he also looks at himself and says, my grandfather was picking cotton. I'm in the United States Senate. There's nothing different about me than there is in any other black American. America is open to be able to work hard, to be able to do what you can. We have opportunities that are out there if you're willing to take it. So he says, yes, we have we have challenges. We need to address those challenges. But everybody needs to be able to get up and be able to get to work. All right. And I think it's going to be good. I just hope that, you know, a lot of times they'll storm off or they'll right. try to overwhelm them. I, I think it'll be good. Here's why. Publicity. He needs publicity. Whether you like sure. it or not, that, that comes with it. The controversy that comes with the directness of Governor DeSantis and the Hall of Fame directness of Donald Trump kind of kind of swamps sure. the field. This will be his opportunity. It will be. And, and that's the hard part about a field of now 12 people that are coming in is trying to get the attention of folks for the day because a presidential campaign is really the attention of the day, day after day after day. Senator James Lankford, we did a home and home. I was in Oklahoma City, and now we'll you're in New off. York. All right, good job. Great to see you. Stay out of trouble if you can. Oh, I will stay out of trouble. That won't be a problem. Great. Senator James Langford is uh, is taking off. We appreciate the half-hour quality time. When we come back, our uh, Wall Street Journal reporter, best-selling author Scott Patterson in studio. Don't move. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, we're back in a matter of moments. Going to speak to Scott Patterson, reporter of the Wall Street Journal. Fascinating book out called Chaos Kings. How Wall Street traders make billions in the new age of crisis. But it was great to have Senator uh, James Lankford in studio. He um, uh, He's just an impactful first congressman, now senator. Uh, and he's uh, somewhat optimistic that we didn't get a chance to get to it. I thought 2024 would be more interesting. But he was just telling me in the break, too, that he is uh, cautiously optimistic that Democrats want to do something at the border because they know what's happening in the cities and because they know how dangerous it's gotten. And people in all different states, no one could say, well, that's not my problem. Uh, Arizona's not my problem. Texas is not my problem. California never complains. Now they have New York City, Chicago, Philadelphia, especially New York, overwhelmed with illegal immigrants, and it's everybody's problem. 
So uh, we'll talk about that. We're going to be talking about the economy shortly, so I want to go over some things. Unbelievable. We had 339,000 jobs. I think that's great. But I think it also is overwhelming. Another big uh, scary indicator, and that is we're growing at 1%, very close to zero and negative. You get two in a row. That is a recession. So we're growing at 1%, and China's growing at 5%, even though that they're slumping and struggling. And I don't necessarily believe their numbers. Concerned. A lot of people should be concerned. And then out of nowhere, I look up and I see Saudi Arabia, not OPEC, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia will reduce uh, oil that it sends to the global economy. Out of nowhere, a unilateral step to prop up the sagging price of crude oil. They will cut their supply by one million barrels per day. Why does that matter? It never used to matter that much. The thing was getting to Saudi Arabia was the way we were fracking. We were fracking at such a level, their impact on the world oil markets was diminished. And we could, with a swagger, say, oh, you have a, I have a problem with OPEC. It looks like I'm just going to manufacture and I'm going to pump out more oil. But when you have an administration that lives to go green uh, and wants to de-emphasize the combustion engine, it's hard to say, uh-oh, they're cutting back. Let's refine more. Let's drill more. And that's what you have agenda as opposed to what's good for you and me. With me right now is Scott Patterson. Scott, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, congratulations on the book, Scott. Tell me, what pro- when did you realize that some people were profiting more than or exponentially from the pandemic? Uh, yeah, this, this popped up in early 2020 when uh, reports came out that this hedge fund that I've been actually following for like 15 years called Universa uh, made a 4,000% return in the first three months of the year. Uh, and, and that's because they have a strategy that's constantly betting against the market. Uh, usually they lose a little bit of money, but when the market crashes like it did in early 2020, they make a lot of money. And that's what happened uh, when the pandemic started. So somebody was making a lot of money. And by the way, I'm talking to Scott Patterson, the author of Chaos Kings, a new book that's out, How Wall Street Traders Made Billions in the New Age of Crisis. Scott, one of the reasons they can make that money is because they can predict it. How do they know what's going to happen? Yeah, you know, that's actually an interesting part of their strategy is they don't predict it. <laughs> they they have a strategy that is constantly uh, shorting the market uh, in a massive way. Um, and so the, how this works is, say, a pension fund will put a small part of their uh, their assets into Universa, say, like 3%, and the rest they can use to bet on the market or bonds or whatever. So they constantly have this uh, – this, uh, it's kind of like an insurance against a crash. So the, the manager of Universa, Mark Sitznagel, says that he doesn't predict anything. He never predicts where the market's going to go. He, he actually thinks he's not very good at it. Um, now, there are some people who do predict. They have very sophisticated methods to try to predict crashes uh, using you know physics or complexity theory, things like that. But that's not what Universa does. So if I – I mean, in layman's terms, for people that don't do uh, work head funds for a living, what exactly mm-hmm. is going on and why – it was more than just this pandemic, Correct. Yeah, they've been doing this since the late 90s, actually. Uh, it started off with a hedge fund uh, founded by uh, Nassim Taleb, the famous author of Black Swan. Uh, they they launched this hedge fund called Empirica, and it basically did the same thing. It, it, it bought uh, stock options that would pay off in a massive decline, and they've just been perfecting the strategy for decades. 
uh, they actually created it. There's there's a lot of copycats out there that do the same thing. Um, it's not a thing that you know mom and pop can should really try at home. It's it's pretty sophisticated stuff uh, using derivatives. Um, but it is you know uh, it, it is for for funds that buy this protection. It does help them get through the rocky times. Uh, like 2008 and 2009, uh, Universa also had massive returns, and, and, fed, and funds that were invested in it uh, did pretty well because they had this protection. It's like fire insurance for your house. You know, you, you pay it, um, you, you know, you keep paying it, you don't get anything because your house doesn't burn down, but when it does, uh, you get a lot of money in return. It's protection, basically. So are you exposing corruption or are you just exposing success? Uh, I would say in this case, success. They're very successful. Uh, they've been doing this for quite a while, like I said. Uh, and it's, you know, a lot of times this is pension fund money that's invested in this stuff, so it actually helps retirees if they have this protection from Universa. Um, you know, I, I have in the past written about corruption in the market. I've got some other uh, books that I wrote, like uh, a book called Dark Pools, that expose corruption and high-frequency trading and bringing of the markets. But this is, I think this book, Chaos Kings, is more uh, a success story. And and they also, you know, another thing that they do is that Universa does and the Seam to Lab has written about is, you know, they do uh, expose a certain amount of corruption on Wall Street and use of bad risk management strategies, too much right. leverage, things that blow banks up. Uh, you know, black swan stuff that uh, comes out of the blue that, um, you know, if you're using too much risk, uh, you blow up. And, and that's the thing that Universa can't do. Its strategy is uh, uh, protected against blow-ups. They, they can never blow up. Um, they will lose a little bit of money most years because they're constantly buying this insurance, just like any insurance policy. Um, but one thing they say is that the market, you know, the U.S. stock market and global markets really are a lot more risky than people, most people realize. So that's interesting. But they hedge. But you say that there's, there's not that much risk? Uh, there's not risk of a blow up. Um, they can't blow up. They don't use leverage. Uh, the risk is that the market never crashes. So if we went year after year after year and the market just sort of steadily went up or sort of floated uh, uh, up and down a little bit but didn't make any major moves, they would uh, keep losing money. But what they say is that uh, part of their strategy is that because funds that have this protection uh, allows them to invest more in the stock market than a lot of other strategies do. So if you have, say, 97% of your funds in, say, an S&P 500 index and then 3% in Universa, uh, the historical record shows that you're probably going to do better than other hedge-like strategies, like if you had 60% in stocks or 40% in bonds, you've got a lot more in stocks, so you actually do better. Even though that crash protection isn't paying off, you're, you get a lot more upside from the stock market. So interesting. Uh, so, Scott, lastly, you just said there's a uh, on this, but there's two school of thoughts. You you write uh, the first uh, school of thought is uh, there's the first is the the Spinsnagel Talib school. How they believe market crashes are black swans, as you mentioned. 
Well, and the second school of thought is what? Uh, it's led by this French uh, physicist named Didier Sornet, who has developed very sophisticated methods taken from physics uh, and complexity theory to detect what he calls dragon kings. It's sort of his version of the black swan. Um, and these are just extremely uh, calamitous events in the market. And he says his system uh, allows him to detect little ripples that are uh, occurring that are a sign of a big crash to come. And, and he actually developed this system from uh, methods that could detect explosions in rockets. Wow. <laughs> and he, he says that he can he's used the same system to detect that in, in uh, the, the market. So, Scott, I'm just, I can't predict a natural disaster. I don't know anyone else can. The pandemic was uh, from China, and so could the next disaster, a world war. I mean, if they go into Taiwan, there's going to be some extreme action from the West. Is, is some, are they maneuvering yeah. financially about that scenario now? Well, I, you know, I would say that a firm like Universa is just constantly going to have that protection on. And, and, and they would say, you, you know, you're right. You can't really predict these things. The pandemic, uh, when it came along, it hit really quick. Uh, I don't think anybody had any idea that it would have that kind of effect on the market so quickly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there there are groups of people like that out there that are they're very bearish, and they think that the market is a is a tinderbox. Uh, Spitznagel, Mark Spitznagel, actually a couple months ago, right, uh, the the manager of Universa wrote that the market is a mega tinderbox time bomb <laughs> that's going to go off because there's too much uh, debt in the markets. Great. Fantastic. I just got to ask you about AI because you write about that, too. You know, we had the CEOs, the smartest people around saying, I want I want guardrails. I never remember that in my life. They're asking for guardrails. I fundamentally and I don't blame them. Don't think the Senate is the place to set up guardrails on the next generation of tech advancement. So who should? Yeah, I mean, to me, what that is, and I, you know, I can't say I'm an expert on it, but you have the leading AI companies coming to Congress and saying, "Please regulate us." And usually, when you know big corporations are doing that, what what they're actually trying to do is stop competition from smaller upstarts to try to say, "Okay, let's lock things down right now. Where we are, we're we're good. We're in the lead." Put regulations on to make it harder for startups to get a a leg up. Um, and you, you sort of solidify oh. your places. So you see leader. a manipulation. We can't believe what we hear from Schmidt see and that Musk. All the time. And I, 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 to me, it's just, it, you know, when a company comes before Congress and says, hey, what we're doing is really dangerous, please regulate us, you got to think there's, another, there's something else going on there. And it, you know, to me, it seems like they're trying to lock their place in as market leaders of, of AI. Are you someone that's somewhat concerned about what's next for this? Ray, I, you know, I, I just don't know. I don't see the disaster scenarios that I think that humans are pretty good at, at uh, managing things like this. We're innovative. Uh, we're, we're able to look ahead. Um, it's, I think maybe some people have watched too many movies <laughs> uh, and are just overhyping the risks of this, and, and there's a lot of advantages that come from these new technologies. Uh, you know, 
could could there be some kind of doomsday scenario in the future that we we don't know? You know, there could be for a lot of things. I mean, there's, you know, we're in the age of experimentation with all sorts of new technologies. That's something I write about in the book um, and try to think about ways to protect ourselves against them. But it's a it's a delicate dance because right. you don't want to stop innovation either. You going to continue to cover it? Uh, yeah, sure. AI is something you can't get out of. I just wrote a piece about artificial intelligence used in uh, clean energy technology. It's a rising thing uh, for the Wall Street Journal. Can be beneficial. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Especially with you know the spread of technology um, in all sorts of realms. AI helps manage uh, the massive amounts of data that's spit out by um, all these technologies and helps us, uh, you know, manage these things more efficiently. Gotcha. Hey, uh, Scott Patterson's book is out called Chaos Kings, How Wall Street Traders Made Billions in the New Age of Crisis, uh, like, for example, the pandemic. Scott, great. Congratulations. Thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. one 408 7669 from what's happening in 2024 to what we could say about China, their aggressive actions, and our lack of strong response. And we'll have the latest on tensions boiling over as people get impatient with the investigation into the Biden family. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's The Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. He doesn't like to use woke because people don't know what it means. That's obviously been a big part of your messaging. What do you say to that? Look, we know what woke is. It's a form of cultural Marxism. It's about putting merit and achievement behind identity politics. And it's basically a war on the truth. And as that has infected institutions, it has corrupted a lot of institutions. So you've got to be willing to fight the woke. We've done it in Florida. And we proudly uh, consider ourselves the state where woke goes to die. And uh, next hour, we're going to be joined by Governor DeSantis. Uh, so make sure if you miss it, uh, we'll, we'll definitely post it up. And you can always get the podcast, BrianKillMeShow.com. And he is the guy that people fear most. And Donald Trump has been in the lead, but it seems like everybody's shooting for him. And what is woke and what is he doing? I want you to hear what Nikki Haley did, had an hour on CNN last night which I don't blame her for taking. She said this about Ron DeSantis and his war with Disney. Cut one. So here you have DeSantis, who accepted 50,000 in political contributions from Disney. He went and put their executives and their lobbyists on prominent boards throughout Florida. And he went and basically gave the highest corporate subsidies in Florida history to Disney. But because they went and criticized him, Now he's going to spend taxpayer dollars on a lawsuit. It's just like all this vendetta stuff. We've been down that road again. We can't go down that. Businesses were my partners in South Carolina. We didn't always get along. And I, you know, luckily, South Carolina is very anti-woke. But when you have a company like that, don't bring the citizens' taxpayer dollars into it. Well, I think there's a few things. I mean, she feels the same way Governor Christie did, and I think... Donald Trump at first was criticizing Governor DeSantis because it taken on Disney. And then he said he shouldn't have let Disney go that far. But what Governor DeSantis did is send a warning shot and give 
a lot put a wind at the back of a lot of governors who did not like the way corporations were were functioning and weighing in on all their policies. Case in point, what happened in Georgia? Anyone did that and blew them up, and Disney lost its autonomous status. They're suing to get it back, and it's fighting. But if you see this other stuff that's come out about Disney, you see these cross-dressing transgenders, greeting your daughter at the at the gate at a uh, a tour of the princess's castle. Do you really want a princess with a mustache touring your four-year-old around? you know the questions you're going to be getting? That's Disney's idea. So Bob Iger could come in and, and settle something. He's evidently this great CEO. Just ask him. Instead, he decides to sue back at Florida. So Florida's going to sue back at them. And they tried to mess with the board before he dismantled the, the current Disney board and put his board in there. They made a rule to make permanent their own government status within Orlando, Central Florida. So he's pushing back, and that's where they think he's vulnerable. I think it's a tough argument for other Republicans to make against DeSantis. But I want to see what he has to say. I'll play that for him and see what he has. Uh, and keep in mind, this is the place to be for 2024. we got all the breaking news. we got all the candidates. We're also going to be bringing back what Tim Scott says on The View. I'm sure they'll be disrespectful, and I'm sure he'll be able to come back at him very, very strong. In a polite way, because he's Tim Scott. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. From 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. I hope you had a fantastic weekend, and we are back in action today. Uh, And, of course, Father's Day closing in, the next big holiday, then the 4th of July, one week from Memorial Day. And one thing is pretty clear in between, the thing that's going to stand up for the standout in the DeSantis family is when last week, Governor DeSantis officially became a candidate. And he had his first full week last week, I should say, uh, out on the trail in New Hampshire, as well as uh, in, uh, in Iowa. And with me right now is the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Welcome, Governor. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. So, what did the first first, what did the first week feel like for you? I'll tell you, it was incredible. We uh, expected that we would get a good response, but in every place, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, uh, the the crowds exceeded our expectations. Uh, people were really excited to be out there and really uh, appreciated the message. I think that a lot of these Republicans in these other states, of course, they 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 know me now. They 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 like what I've done in Florida. But they don't really know everything we've done, and and they haven't necessarily seen me in person yet. And so what we found is when people were able to do that, we had a lot of people say, yeah, I I didn't know what I was going to do in this primary, but sign me up. And so, you know, these first few states, I mean, in the state of Florida, you know, we we have millions and millions of votes cast. Iowa will be probably less than 200,000, New Hampshire a few hundred thousand. We had more votes in Miami-Dade County in my uh, re-election than that. So getting out and meeting the people personally, I think it's something that's really, really important. And uh, and we really started off very, very well. But look, people want to change. Uh, they understand the country's going in the wrong direction. And we papered all these places. We did five stops in Iowa, four in New Hampshire, three in South Carolina. And I think what we showed is Biden is not going to be able to get away with just sitting in his basement on this campaign because we are going to run him ragged all across this country, holding him accountable for his failures. What is the most frequent question you get? Uh, Because I was used to this. I mean, they've been doing this for decades. What's the question that they have for you that might have surprised you a little bit? 
I'll tell you, Brian, people are, because I'm a veteran, I'm the only veteran that's running, uh, people are very concerned about the state of our military. They see the politicization of it. They see a lot of woke ideology going in. They saw a lot of warriors being driven off with the COVID vax mandate, which was a huge disaster. And a lot of the veterans and military families really want to see uh, that ship righted. And so I think they're looking to me as somebody that has experience uh, to be able to do that. But I heard that in all three states where, you know, obviously South Carolina, you'd expect it's a very heavy uh, military, a lot of military families. But I'll tell you, people in Iowa, people in New Hampshire, that was something they were sensitive about. It may not get as much play as some of the other issues, uh, but that was there. And then I think, of course, they are so sick of this border issue that's been going on for a long time. I mean, you know, Biden's made it worse than ever, but it's been going on for years and years, decades, really. And we're going to put it to a conclusion. We're going to get it done. And I think they really want to see see action on that. Uh, but I think they understand, you know, you got to be you got to be disciplined. You got to have a good plan. You got to execute this stuff. And so we'll get that done. And then finally, I would say and you you can appreciate this, Brian, because you spend time in Florida. But, you know, I can be in, in western Iowa and someone will come up to me and they will say, Hey, hey, thank you for fixing the Sanibel Causeway. <laughs> I was like, well, how right. did you know that? They're like, well, you know, my, uh, uh, <laughs> my, uh, my, my, my father's got a condo down there. I have a place down there or something. And so even in places, uh, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, far away, uh, people are, are following what's going on in Florida. And they have, they have some type of a connection to our state. So I was amazed uh, for me personally. I know, I know you're going to be taking on Trump directly. He's been taking you on for about three months. You've been indirectly going back because you weren't a candidate. And now you're more directly going back. Nikki Haley last night went at you uh, with on CNN and talked about your war with Disney. Cut one. So here you have DeSantis, who accepted 50,000 in political contributions from Disney. He went and put their executives and their lobbyists on prominent boards throughout Florida. And he went and basically gave the highest corporate subsidies in Florida history to Disney. But because they went and criticized him, now he's going to spend taxpayer dollars on a lawsuit. It's just like all this vendetta stuff. We've been down that road again. We- and, and you went on to say that. So your reaction to her assessment of your war with Disney? How utterly bizarre. I mean, somebody does a campaign contribution and you're supposed to lay down for them. That's not how I operate. People can support me or not support me. I call them as I see them. And if you've supported me, but you're wrong, I'm going to do what's right. Second of all, I did not give subsidies. They, uh, Reedy Creek has been there for decades. You know that. That was there since the 1960s where they had their own government, had these massive subsidies. Yes, we unwound that and we ended their self-governing status, but it wasn't anything that I gave for them. But I do think it's interesting. All these other Republicans have basically sided with Disney um, on this. And, and also, I'm not suing them. They sued us. We're going to win that lawsuit. Of course, we're going to defend. But they're siding with Disney. And at the end of the day, as a parent of three young kids, uh, we are going to fight the sexualization of minors and children. Uh, We're going to fight anybody that's trying to rob them of their innocence. And we are not going to compromise whether that's standing up to a big 800-pound gorilla like Disney or anybody else. Uh, We're going to stand with the children. And I think our voters 
want to see that because they understand raising kids nowadays is difficult. There's a lot of people trying to impose an agenda on them, uh, and they want somebody like me who's going to stand there and offer protection. But I think there's also the other issue of, you know, as Republicans, you can't just be a lackey for corporate America. You've got to be willing to stand up for individual taxpayers. You've got to be willing to stand up for small business. So the days of Republicans just deferring right. uh, to large corporations, I think, need to be over. Uh, not all these other Republicans are willing to do that. But I think with me and what we've been able to do by fighting woke corporations, kneecapping ESG in Florida, uh, we're willing to stand up to these people uh, because I think they're trying to pursue an agenda that's not in right. the best interest of our country. Governor DeSantis, our guest, obviously. So you're going to love this. The CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, talking about one of the most powerful companies in the world, talking about his agenda, not to maximize profits, but to do this. You know, what we're doing internally is if you don't achieve these levels of impact, your compensation could be impacted, okay? We're doing the same thing. And so you have to force behaviors. And if you don't force behaviors, whether it's gender or race or just any way you want to say the composition of your team, you're going to be impacted. And that's not just not recruiting. It is development, as Ken said. And ultimately, it's still going to take time, but I am just as much shocked as Ken is, that we have not seen more opportunities. At a, at a time in which gonna, it looked like the Supreme Court was is pulling away and probably going to pull away from affirmative action, he's saying it's time to force change. So the issue with ESG is, one, the policies he wants to impose are bad policies. They want to kneecap domestic energy production. That's bad for people's pocketbooks because energy prices will be higher. It's also bad for our national security because we will not be energy independent. But it's also the larger issue of who the heck do these people think they are that they govern our society? Nobody voted for him. And so our mantra in Florida is, no uh, economic or social transformation without representation. Uh, these are policies that could not win at the ballot box. And so they're trying to do through corporate America what they can't do in the electoral process. In Florida, we got rid of BlackRock in our state pension fund, $2 billion management I took away because it conflicts with our anti-ESG stance. But I am not going to have this country governed by a bunch of jet setters going to Davos and hanging out at the World Economic Forum. That does not work for us. Uh, we're going to make sure that we're standing up for everyday Americans who are right. working hard, and they need access to affordable energy, um, and they need to be treated as individuals and not have to compete in the woke Olympics just to get a job or just to get their kid in school. All right. Uh, that's interesting. So let's, let's talk about what's happening in the world. Here's Secretary of Defense Austin in response to China refusing to meet his counterpart, refusing to meet with him. The a destroyer being headed off within 150 uh, yards uh, by a, a Chinese ship and one of our fighter jets. They're coming within 400 feet. This is what he said. We will support our allies and partners as they defend themselves against coercion and bullying. To be clear, We do not seek conflict or confrontation, but we will not flinch in the face of bullying or coercion. Is that the strength that you expect the Secretary of Defense have, sounding like a diplomat? Would that be your Secretary of Defense's stance? Would that be Ron DeSantis's stance? No, of course not. I mean, when you first of all, we've got to recognize. The CCP is the foremost threat that this country faces. Uh, President Xi Jinping is very ambitious. 
Uh, he's expansionist. He's done a lot to build up their military. Now, they don't have as powerful military as us, but they're gaining on us. Uh, clearly, their economy has grown tremendously over the last uh, few decades, and, and that largely because I think of some bad American policy, which we could discuss later. And so the issue is the Chinese respect strength. They respect an ability to project power. And I think Biden uh, has invited people to be more aggressive uh, through his weakness. And so part of it is being uh, willing to lay down the law and follow through with what you say and a variety of different issues. Part of it, though, I do think uh, we need to be able to project more power in the Pacific. Uh, some of that is having more naval strength than we have now. Some of it is dealing with the wokeness in the military, so morale increases and we get more recruits coming in. Some of it is dealing uh, productively with our allies like Japan, Korea, India, and uh, Australia in that region. I think the goal needs to be to deter Chinese aggression and to prevent a conflict. Strength will do that. Weakness will invite a conflict. So, Governor, no doubt about it. Uh the president's coming after you, the former president's coming after you regularly. He thinks the fact that you're running is disloyal, and you really haven't done that great a job in Florida. Do you feel – were you hesitating <laughs> a little bit about running because you've worked with him before? So here's the issue. He has said how great we've done in Florida for years. He said we were one of the great governors. Florida's one of the great states. Florida stayed open. They did it right during COVID. All this now he's changed his tune, and he's saying Andrew Cuomo did better with his lockdowns in New York than we did during during Florida um, free state. I don't. I could count the number of Republicans on my hand who would have rather have lived under Cuomo's lockdowns than would have rather lived under free Florida. So he's just trying to sell people a bill of goods. That is totally. Absolutely ridiculous. And I don't think anybody actually believes that. Here's what I, I think. You know, I owe loyalty to the people that elected me. The people that elected me, they don't need to be loyal to elected officials. It's our job to be loyal to them, to their aspirations and to the larger cause. You know, be loyal to your faith and your family and your country. Um, other politicians, you work with them to right. be able to advance a, a larger mission. Um, but people need to earn it. You need to go out there and earn it. And I think what I would be able to do is um, we would be able to get this done against Biden, but then come in with a lot of energy in the executive office um, and have a really bold agenda that we'll be able to implement mm -hmm. and then also run for reelection, get reelection, and then have eight years to really uh, institute lasting change. And I think that this is a critical moment for the country. We're not going to get a mulligan after 2024. You know, some people tell me like, oh, well, um, you know, you should just, quote, wait to 28. Well, that would make sense if you're running to be somebody. But I'm not running to be somebody. I'm running to do something. And I think 2024 is the country's hour of need. And I think we'll be able to get the job done for the American people. Do you think that uh, Trump is electable in the general? So I think that there's a lot of voters who just aren't going to vote for him, who don't like Biden and you realize the country's going in the wrong direction, but they're not going to go there. And I think that in 2016, the voters that disliked both Trump and Hillary, they sided with Trump. I think in 2020 and 24, it'll be they dislike both, but they would probably default to Biden. So I think that they want a vehicle to go forward. Um, but I think he's got some issues with a state like Georgia, for example. Um, you know, when they ran the uh, Herschel Walker race, the Democrats, 
in the runoff. They were just running ads in the Atlanta suburbs showing Trump endorsing Walker. The Democrats were running that because they knew that that would cause some of those suburban voters uh, to vote to vote for their candidates. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, we have a great track record of Florida of reaching voters who had traditionally not voted Republican. I mean, when we're winning over 60 percent of Hispanics, when we're winning right. independence by 18 percentage points and when we're winning Miami-Dade County by double digits, you know, that's showing that strong leadership can attract people. And at the end of the day, you know, we've had three substandard election cycles in a row as Republicans. Um, I think that it's right for us to bring new people into the party. Uh, but you got to have that vision and you got to convert on it. We've showed an ability to do that in Florida like few others have. Governor, is discouraging to be down 30, 40 points? Well, I don't think we are in the early states, but I also think that uh, I just started running. I mean, a lot of people didn't didn't know I was going to run or weren't sure. So um, I think I think we're actually in really good shape. Uh, it's a long run. Uh, we've got a great plan, and I think we're going to be uh, very strong. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, which is what you need to do um, if you're going to able going to be able to win these things. And I would also note, you know, to the extent the poll, I don't think the polling matters right now. But the extent it does, you know, these swing state polls. I'm beating Biden in places like Georgia, Arizona, uh, whereas Biden is beating Trump in those places. And then I would also say, you know, some of these same pollsters that are putting some of this stuff out, you know, they were putting out polls in my reelection saying I was only up by one or two points and I won by 20. So I would take some of this stuff with a grain of salt. I think there's an, an effort to try to create narratives uh, with, with polls uh, for, for different right. people's agendas. Um, but here's what I would also say that, Brian, the way I'm being attacked uh, Trump has run almost 20 ads, 20 million in ads negative attacking me, um, you know, with with frivolous and, 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 and false uh, uh, smears. Uh, the corporate press is attacking me more than anybody else. The Democrats are attacking me. They would not do that if they didn't think I was a threat. I mean, if they thought that I wasn't, um, you know, in, in shape to, to really win this thing, they would just be ignoring me. Uh, but they're not. They're coming after me. I'm the one that's taken most of the fire. And I think that's an indication that, that people know that, yeah, we do have what it takes um, and that we're a force to be reckoned with. And hopefully you'll stay in touch with us along the way. I know you're in Iowa over the weekend. You'll be going to those early states while still governing a state and raising your family. Not easy, Governor. Good job. I know you're in fighting shape and ready to go for this. Uh, best of luck. Okay. Thanks, Brian. We'll talk soon. All right. You got it. Governor Ron DeSantis, one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Back in a moment. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, we're back. I went a little long, so we have a, a quick turnaround here. But it's great to hear Governor DeSantis so up, be ready to go. A couple of things that uh, ring out. Number one is he went right back into Nikki Haley. He said it was an absurd attack on the Disney situation. And he did point out that almost every Republican is against his stance there. But this is the thing about Governor DeSantis that I'm not sure that anyone fully understands unless you look at him regularly. He loves the combat. He loves it because he has the answer for it. And I haven't seen him flummoxed at all. And since when people say, well, you can't show anger at the press. Not really. I mean, you can't lose your temper, but you could show anger. You could be direct. You know, someone accuses you of doing X, Y, and Z, and you're not true. Nothing wrong with being direct. I mean, that's not Glenn Youngkin's way. You know, that's not Tim Scott's way. Sometimes it's Nikki Haley's way. It's always Donald Trump's way, right? It's always Joe Biden's way. 
I mean, besides, when, when Joe Biden doesn't get a layup from the press, he's angry. And he has been vicious to people. Later, he'll oftentimes call back. As I think he gets upset that he can't understand it or doesn't understand why people just don't agree with him. But that's what we're going to find out on the plan. So the more people that attack DeSantis, I think he's going to excel, especially if Trump's not on the stage. So we'll talk again. Uh, he likes coming on the show. He knows he's got a bunch of Florida stations, too. We're going to come back. It's going to be your turn to talk. one 408 7669 Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we are back, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Special thanks to Governor Ron DeSantis for joining us. And with me right now is one of the busiest guys in sports, Daryl Johnston, uh, former outstanding uh, fullback in the NFL, three-time Super Bowl champion. And now he is the executive vice president of football operations doing everything as the USFL is embarking on a second successful season, which a lot of people thought was impossible. Uh, Daryl, week nine is now done. How does it feel? Well, we didn't have any movement last weekend, Brian. It's, it's amazing. So the uh, the South swept the North. So everything is status quo right now as we look uh, as we look towards the playoffs to try and get a little bit of clarity uh, going into the the last part of the season. But I, I love what we've done from a scheduling standpoint. Weeks nine, weeks ten, we are going to be interdivisional uh, in the South. We're crossing over both weekends with North versus South with a really really tight race there and then up north we'll cross over once from detroit to canton and then we'll go intrahub uh on the final week so uh, i think that philadelphia michigan game week week 10 could hopefully determine who's one who's two we could have a lot of excitement going into the final weeks so right now so it's a 10-week season yes yep 10-week we season up week eight and then you have two you have two fi- uh, a semifinal and a final right Yes, yeah. So once we get through the regular season, we'll do a North Division Championship and a South Division Championship, and then those winners will go uh, up to Canton to play the, the USFL Championship year, too. And before we get into the game, just real quick, how do, how do the coaches feel about you Mike, in the offensive coordinator into the booth, the coaches being Mike, <laughs> uh, the interaction on the on when you challenge a – when you challenge a play, you now can hear the referees think about what was right, how to switch it. What's been the feedback you've gotten? It's been really good. Um, it, it, it's interesting because the fans, you know, they always want more access. And, and I think that what we've provided this year, um, we've kind of pushed out a little bit more. Um, I, I think that our sideline reporters do a great job um, in their dialogue with the coaches on the sideline. I, I think our announcers do a really good job of, of being able to take all that information and, and be kind of anticipatory thinking, um, you know, actually, you know, kind of, you know, able to describe, you know, what, what's going to happen on that play, which is remarkable because they're not playing in these offenses. So they're not there during the practice week. So it's just, it's really good work on their time outside, uh, you know, to kind of become acclimated, you know, with those offenses. But I, I think what we've done with Mike Pereira, I think people have appreciated that because it's not just the call. I think sometimes fans get frustrated because they'll get the, the call and they still don't agree with it. And they want to know, well, how did you get to that point? So th- this way we take the the viewer into that situation and, and they're they're basically in the replay center with Mike Pereira. And he's he's talking you through what he has seen and why he's come to the conclusion that he's come to. Uh, so I think that that's been really good. My favorite part is when he comes into the stadiums. You know, we've seen it on television 
but we've also found a way to bring Mike into the stadiums, and and that's been really that's been really interesting. Um, you know, he's been well received at times, and and not well received at times. Right. The thing is, I, I remember the first time he was giving broadcasters at Fox right here at twelve eleven. He was giving the sports guys a rundown of the new rules and just to go over the rules so the broadcasters get it straight. And I saw how entertaining and insightful he was. And he's like, going to Terry Bradshaw, how are we long? I got a scenario. Tell me who's wrong. Tell me who's right. I thought, this guy's unbelievable. And to be able to, I know you get that all the time. Next thing you know, he's in the booth. And now everybody right. has a referee available in almost every sport, including soccer, in the booth. So I think it's, it's just a fascinating part of it. Why can't refs have an advocate? You know, rather than people saying, I wish it went that way. Well, why not have an expert? I, I think it was so forward thinking on Fox's part. And, and it was just one of the things that we had as a, as a part of our seminar every year. Um, and, and the dialogue that came out of that, I, I think our bosses looked at that and said, if, if our guys are struggling, you know, to kind of get clarity in some of these scenarios, just imagine what the fans are doing. So I, I, I just thought it was, yeah. you know, brilliant by Fox to, to create that position. And, and to your point now, every Every time we, we watch sports, there's somebody on there that's bringing clarity to the rules. So uh, the Stallions beat the uh, New Orleans 24-20. Uh, Stars over the Maulers 37-31. Uh, Memphis, first year, uh, back in action, 23-20 winners over the Gamblers. Michigan Panthers uh, beat the New Jersey Generals 25-22. Uh, now you don't have them all in their separate cities. But just real quick, do you, did you see the XFL – and what do you think about them? Do you believe only one of your leagues can survive? I think that's a big question that everybody's waiting to see the answer to. Um, you know, is there is there enough talent uh, available to have a, a quality of, of football that viewers will tune into, that fans will buy a ticket to go watch? So I, I think that that is something that we'll, we'll find out down the road. Um, and, and that's really kind of where our competition comes from between the two leagues. You know, if this is going to be a winner-take-all scenario, um, you know, that, that's, that's what's going to be determined down the road. But for us, it's, it's really, you know, kind of that key part. We're, every day we, we wake up and we try to create the, the best football that we can to be able to put on television and, and have in our stadiums for our fans to watch. So, you know, that, that's our driving force. You know, along with that right. is creating the opportunities for these players and, and not just the players, but also the coaches. We had several coaches last year. Uh, that we're able to get back into some some really good opportunities for them to grow sure. moving forward outside the USFL. So it, it's it, it, there's a lot of different angles that we come at, but I, I think the big thing is is people on the outside are worried about, hey, is this a winner take all scenario? We don't look at it that way. We we wake up every day just trying to be yeah. the best that we can be with the USFL, and and if we continue to do that every single day then if that does come to fruition, if that ends up being a situation where maybe there's just not enough talent to have 16 teams in the spring playing football, um, maybe we, we start to see a reduction in viewership or a, a reduction yeah. in attendance, then everybody's going to gravitate to the one that they like the most. So I want to bring you to the other job. This is what I mean by hard work. you got to put so much work in in the offseason, regular season, to be a broadcaster like you are with Fox, as well as running this league. So a couple of things. People are talking about Tom Brady in Las Vegas again because Jimmy Garoppolo, signed as a free agent, has an out clause. He's got to get surgery on an ankle. And people say, well, you know, they can get out of this. Then they'll be left with no quarterback. They traded uh, Derek Carr. So I'm wondering from, from your perspective, do you think there's a scenario where this guy that named Tom Brady who wants to be a part-time uh, uh, a, um, 
a minority owner with Las Vegas becomes quarterback? He has to be careful, in my opinion, right now, because you can become a distraction. You know, you're trying to bring, you know, your knowledge, your passion for the game to an organization. Um, you've talked about wanting to have that that ownership uh, opportunity. Uh, you know, to do that, you've got to be clear that, listen, I'm here as an owner now. I, I, I want to be a minority owner. I've, I've been on the field. I've led my team to championships as a quarterback. Now I want to see if I can lead an organization to a championship based on my position in the front office as owner, um, you know, being able to make all those day-to-day decisions, getting great people around you. You're going to know exactly where you feel the, the strengths of an organization need to be. You're going to tap into your network to bring those people in. You know, I, I think the one thing that, that Tom needs to be careful about is to really kind of put all this conversation behind the scenes to rest. You know, just come out and say it. You know, I don't want to play. Yeah, just come out and say I don't want to play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one or the other. Hey, no, I, I'm, I'm either here to play, you know, but or I'm. Listen, I'm going to turn the page on that part of my career. I, I'm, I'm very happy with what I've accomplished. Uh, I, I, I want to try the next step. I want to see if I can do it as a general manager. And, and we've seen that around the league. You know, John, John Lynch is out there in San Francisco. We've seen John Elway, uh, you know, in, in Denver. Um, you know, there's been a number of guys that have had that opportunity. That, that's the one big thing because you have, you have so many experiences during the course of your career and you learn so much from all these great people that come in contact with you throughout your journey. And you want to see if you can pull all the bits and pieces from that and, and create a successful team, a, a successful organization. Yeah. You, you've done it as a player. But can you do it from that other seat? And that other seat's a lot more challenging. Um, you know, there's so many different moving parts. So I, I just think that it, it would be great for Tom just to give some clarity on on really where he wants to be, what he's passionate about right now. Because it's not Ozzie Newsom is the Ozzie yeah. Newsom is our is is our best example of when you when you get to that position and you're focused and and consistent with everything that you're doing you know, what you can accomplish, uh, you know, with a, with a guy who's played the game and understands a lot from a player's perspective and then is able to blend all that, that new information that he's gathering from the front office, from personnel, ownership, all the different uh, tentacles that are up in that, in that area. Right, and that's what you're doing. Uh, I mean, he was an outstanding tight end who made the transition to be one of the best executives in football, and he went from the Browns to when the team moved to the Ravens, and now he's made, he was mentoring other people too. Uh, so, Daryl, you're on that same path uh, while you had broadcasting in, in between. So I don't know how you're doing it. So you got a few more weeks left, Daryl. We'll check with you again next week. Daryl Johnson, thank you. Absolutely. Always good to talk to you, Brian. All right. And you can follow him at Daryl Johnston. If you love football, you got to check out this league. It is first class. All right. When we come back, I'll take your calls. one 408 7669 If you're at work but kind of listening with your one of your uh, AirPods in, and you want to write me, just go to BrianKilme.com, click on questions, comments, and I'll get it and I'll get to it. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. And you like watching Fox and Friends every morning? Every, every morning. Oh, yeah. All this, the time. Well, yeah. thank you for watching us. Yeah. I take Brian's advice and get dressed. Oh, that's exactly. You know, we don't know how many actually take his advice, so it's good to know at least one. <laughs> all right, let's take a look at the maps. Oh, Brian, it's great that you say that every morning. And that is uh, something that happened this morning, the 6 o'clock hour. Now, uh, I don't know if I told you this, Allison, they put it in the prompter. 
So when I do the promo, they instead of, you know, they put the promo in the prompter and they ask one anchor a day to promo at 5.50 for the 6 o'clock show or 5.45. And it says, now it says, get dressed in the prompter. That's how. So they think I'm going to forget it. Uh, what I actually coined it, because I actually do my image of you out there in the mornings, even listening to this show, depending on the time zone you're in, is that you're getting ready. Like, you don't just sit there and look at the radio or look at the television. You're getting ready. You're hearing in the background. So I'm saying to myself, get up, get dressed, get started, lay out your clothes, put them on slowly. So I want to urge you, I, I don't expect you to sit and watch or listen, but don't turn it off. So now it's become one of those things. Uh, so a couple of things. Just got this. While we while that was rolling, uh, Ray just wrote me. Ray says this. Why do we have so many Republicans getting in the race? There, this will do nothing but ensure Trump wins. I think we need new blood, period. Someone who is untarnished. Everyone in the race or thinking about getting in the race has blemishes. Haley, Scott, Christie, Pence, DeSantis. Why can't they Why can't they agree? What is the uh, what is the punchline here? Okay. I, I don't know. Just because you're a Republican doesn't mean you agree. I mean, this is the story beginning of time, beginning of American politics. Uh, people even agree in the same Within the same party, don't agree. Hillary Clinton didn't get a, get along with Barack Obama. Al Gore didn't get along with Bill Bradley. Uh, Bill Pat Buchanan didn't get along with George H. W. Bush. H. W. Bush didn't get along with Reagan on everything. But they're about eighty percent there on almost everything. So you're if you are Nikki Haley, you might go, yeah, I kind of agree with Trump on everything. You got a better attitude about it. But if I alienate Trump, but if I go out and just rip Trump, everybody that likes Trump is going to be mad at me. So how do I separate myself and not alienate? Now, normally, you don't have one candidate with so much support who has opponents. That's Donald Trump. He's got 80 percent, let's say right now, 60 percent of the Republicans. Others take another look. And that's what you're hoping for, to take another look. Uh, other people just wrote me and said, I'm not watching Fox Business anymore because Kennedy's not on. Listen, you're going to see a lot of Kennedy all over the channel, and you're going to see her on Saturday night at 10 o'clock. They're going to do a series of hosts trying to host a more entertaining show on Saturday night, so you'll get a chance to see that. I think Tyrus was this week. I didn't have a chance to see it. And for some reason, my DVR did not tape one thing. Uh, I was hoping I was hoping that it would tape. Uh, I'd have some kind of answer, but not one show taped. We didn't lose power. I have no idea. But I did set for the, to watch the 10 o'clock show, and it didn't, uh, and it didn't tape, so I apologize for that. Um, another email came in um, for Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, according to Fred, will win. I promise you he will win. And we'll continue to uh, take a look at that. Let's find out if there's indeed more to know. More to know. Invest in premium American whiskey as it ages. The older it gets, the better it gets. And the more valuable it gets. Go to caskdeeds.com. That's caskdeeds.com to learn more. Paid for by Spirits Capital Corporation. All right, here we go. Kansas City Chiefs matriarch Norma Hunt, who at 85 years old has passed away, sadly, Lamar Hunt's widow. She had gone to every single Super Bowl from the first one on. Uh, the Green Bay Packers beat the Kansas City Chiefs in the first one. Uh, that was uh, AFL-NFL. Uh, she was there, of course, because Lamar Hunt was originally, they had the Fran- Kansas City franchise originally from Texas. They moved it to Kansas City to, I think, de-conflict from the, from the Dallas Cowboys. So they moved out uh, in the Houston uh, Oilers, I think, AFL. So they were the AFC, certainly. 
and then they end up going to the Super Bowl. They eventually would be the uh, they would eventually be Super Bowl winners. That's kind of sad. The Hunt family helped get us on this, get us on the field to do all those great interviews at the end of the last Super Bowl, and she was able to get the trophy. Next, better dead than broke. A new survey finds that 61 percent of us are more afraid of running out of money than dying. Life insurance giant Alliance, which conducted the survey, found the result was remarkable because actually it sort of makes sense. Death is inevitable. Running out of cash is not. And when you're dead, you're dead. Maybe it sucks, but you don't know about it. Being old and broke is not the same. Is that a fear of yours, Allison? I mean, I guess like being like what? How do you define old? Right? Do you mean just like when you're retiring and you're still able to do things? Do you mean like old on your deathbed? And well, let's say no money? seventy years old, no money. That would be a you know that would be concerning. Eric, is that a concern of yours? I'm terrified of the stock market crashing right before I retire. Right. <laughs> Have you diversified at all? Oh, it's diversified. But, but I'm still, still wor- I'm still worried. You're still yeah, worried. Still worried. That's why so you got- rather so I'd rather die suddenly. Then, then gradually run out of money. That, that's I a good think. way to look at life. Yeah. But that's it. Actually, Eric, like our guest earlier, Scott Patterson, then put your money into those doomsday uh, hedge funds. Yeah. And then if it crashes, you'll be golden in your retirement. Right. I just want to make sure everyone around me gets gets whatever I have. So I don't want people to say, what the hell? All I got is an Amex bill and a Visa bill, which, by the way, you don't have to pay. Right. That's the one thing about Visa. You got to wonder. The Visa's like, listen, he's 82 and he's charging up a storm. He knows he's going to die soon. Don't you think? So you're going to be like, I'm going to lose out on this. I will say it's sort of known that seniors tend to go a little crazy on QVC. Is that true? You've never heard that? No, I didn't know that. (laughs) Next. The National Fraternal Order of Police Statistics show 160 officers, 166 officers were shot in 2023 already. Uh, Man, that's uh, plus 40 percent. From 2021, there have been 47 ambush-style attacks on law enforcement. Just overall lack of respect. So up 30 percent from 2021, I should say, up 40 percent from 2020. Pretty terrible, isn't it? No, it's very concerning. Fun stuff now. Some Twitter uh, Swift fans say they're wearing adult diapers to her shows so they don't have to miss any songs. This I don't need to know this. That makes you very uncomfortable. Yes, yeah, some Swifties <laughs> are taking the TikTok saying they're attending some shows wearing adult diapers. For those who aren't ready for that level of commitment, there's a Reddit thread where people are sharing their uh, their ears tour bathroom break songs. That makes more sense, right? Like, you know, like, okay, I don't really love the song. It's a good time to run out. 52-day tour kicked off in March with a six-song set from her album Lover on March 17th. We know Aaron Rodgers loves Taylor Swift, right? He was he was rocking it out at one of her concerts. Right. Could you ever be that free-spirited to act like Aaron Rodgers did at that concert? Sober or not? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that wouldn't be free-spirited. I, I think he's probably so. Do you think he's sober? I think he is. I would hope so. He's training. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest-growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade. Uh, There's a lot of pressure on me now to be approachable. Michael Goodwin standing by. It's going to be great. Brett Baer is here at the bottom of the hour. It's going to be almost as good. And then, of course, we have you, 1-866-408-7669. Hey, the President of the United States, sad day, though. This is kind of ironic. He's going to be welcoming the Kansas City Chiefs to the White House today, and this is the day in which their matriarch, uh, the, the owner of the team, or the, the Hunt family owns a team, uh, but uh, they have the passing of the 76-year-old Mrs. Hunt, uh, Lamar Hunt's uh, wife. So that's kind of sad, kind of interesting, but for the most part, I was just stunned 
Uh, I was stunned that how light the president's schedule is on a regular basis. And then compare it to what I read on Sunday, which was how vigorous the president is and how he works out every day and he doesn't drink and he's really inspirational. And I can't believe how much he gets done. I'm just wondering what world New York Times is as opposed to the one that we watched and the one we're living in, like Friday when the president fell on his face. No one's happy about that and took, as was brought up to me, three people to stand him up. Number two, when the president decide when the debt ceiling talks were happening over Memorial Day to go on vacation. Is that the vigorous president that the New York Times sees? Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. And we will, I hope, soon see uh, American officials engaging at senior levels with their Chinese counterparts over the coming months to continue that work. And then at some point we will see President Biden and President Xi come back together again. Tensions boiling over. China buzzes our planes, harasses our ships, storms our military bases, spycraft cross our skies, and we ask to talk? Can we stop showing our enemies weakness? Number two. This corruption scheme has been going back to the time that Joe Biden was vice president. And the intimidation scheme that we're seeing, I mean, it's not unheard of. There you go. Uh, that was Anna Polina. Scary to think that this guy was currently sitting in the White House has become this corrupt. Big week for getting to the bottom of the Biden administration's business as the FBI walks over to James Comer and to Senator Grassley with the latest whistleblower testimony, this 1023 form. Uh, yeah, 1023. Intel alleging corruption with the first family that dates back three and a half years before they even entered office. Number one. What you see is all of these folks looking at Iowa. Without Iowa, none of these other folks are going to make it. So it all comes on to Iowa. It all comes on to delegate math and then momentum thereafter. Reince Priebus knows what it's like to run the RNC and knows the power of Trump. Handing in the final lineup, Governor Christie, former VP Mike Pence and Governor Doug Burgum are set to join the Republican field, leaving only Governor Chris Sununu as the last high-profile contender not yet to decide. Clearly, Trump is the king. They all believe they have to slay. But can they? Let's discuss that uh, with my next guest, Michael Goodwin. Michael, is it Trump's is it Trump's nomination to lose, or are we getting caught up in the spring training standings? Ah, that's a good way to put it, Brian. I, I, I do think it's awfully early. I mean, right now the polls would say that Trump is in the in the driver's seat, and I would agree with that. But uh, you know that that doesn't necessarily uh, hold once people once the campaign gets in full swing and once voters start going to the primaries. You know, just one thing about uh, New Hampshire. You mentioned uh, Chris Sununu, the governor, very popular there, and. He is thinking of running, and I have seen polls that show him not winning the New Hampshire primary, Third. but getting, you know, maybe finishing second to Trump. Um, but he takes a big share of the vote. And so, unless he really is going to run nationally, uh, then he could, in effect, nullify the New Hampshire primary of having any great significance, uh, whether he were to win it or finish second even. Um, because I think what we're all looking for is this face-off between uh, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And uh, that's going to be, I think, the real test. I, I, it's hard for me to see Sununu uh, having national legs, uh, particularly when he hasn't even decided he's going to run. So uh, I, I think that 
getting him out of the polls in New Hampshire, getting him uh, to basically say he's not going to run, would begin to clarify the polls, at least for now. Yeah, so I want to stick with 2024, but I also want to get you on this FBI thing. And you also wrote a great column with Kamala Harris is really running for president. I mean, you know Joe Biden's not going to get the next four if he does, in fact, win. It's just not possible. Right. Uh, he's barely doing anything now. And to see that New York Times story, the place he used to employ you is nuts, that he's vigorous, that he's on top of things, continuing to astound people with what he has accomplished. He's not doing anything. There's you people. Know, Brian, there is I, things getting done, but he's not doing it. Last Friday's Times, uh, he fell on Thursday, right, at the Air Force Academy commencement. Friday's New York Times had Biden fallen on page A14, and a small story at the bottom of the page, and it had a picture, and the caption was, he got up quickly, he was fine. Uh, On A15, in a space about twice as large, they had DeSantis snapping at a reporter, are you blind? So... I mean, it's awfully early, it seems to me, to be loading the dice that way. But if the Times really intends to push Biden across the finish line, good luck with that, because even Democrats don't want him to run. I mean, a minority of the Democratic Party wants Joe Biden to seek a second term. And if the Times is going to be out there flacking for him against even the Democrats who who look at him with their own eyes and see and who are not happy with the results of the first two and a half years, good luck Uh, with trying to prop him up. I know a lot of them uh, are not happy because he's not left enough, which is scary. So I want you to do you remember this on The View? Cut four. He's one of these guys who, you know, he's like Clarence Thomas black Republican who believes in pulling yourself by your bootstraps, rather than, to me, understanding the systemic racism that African-Americans face in this country and other minorities. He doesn't get it, neither does uh, Clarence. Right. And that's why they're Republicans. One of the issues that Tim Scott um, has is that he seems to think because I made it, everyone can make it, ignoring, again, the fact that he is the exception and not the rule. And until he is the rule, then he can stop talking about systemic racism. So Scott's doing this. Cut five. I'm going on The View on Monday. Because I think it's time for a conservative with a backbone to look those ladies in the eyes and say, you do not have to be an exception to succeed in America. You can be the rule and succeed in America. So do you think this is a good move for him? I do. Uh, look, he's got to get some attention. I mean, Tim Scott, you know, has a has a wonderful biography, a wonderful personal story to tell. But I think he's got to enlarge that story. It's got to be about leadership. It's got to be about really being an effective president if he if he hopes to get there. And so, look, taking on the view for Republicans is never a bad thing. I mean, it's such a such a poisonous atmosphere. Yeah, that's where they. Were recruit that audience. I mean, the audience is worse than the hosts. I agree. Uh, This you have uh, Donald Trump with a 30 point lead. You have Ron DeSantis now in there. He had just joined us a little bit earlier uh, and, you know, talked about how everyone's going after him. Listen to Nikki Haley last night on CNN Cut One. So here you have DeSantis, who accepted 50,000 in political contributions from Disney. He went and put their executives and their lobbyists on prominent boards throughout Florida. 
And he went and basically gave the highest corporate subsidies in Florida history to Disney. And you pointed but, out, he pointed out to us, and you'll see it online at foxnews.com, that he pointed out that Florida already, uh, Disney already had those subsidies. And what he did is that 50000 doesn't get you influence with him. That's something they choose to do. He'll accept the contribution. It doesn't mean he's going to accept their policies. So how about the fact that they're going after the number two guy? Do you ever remember this? Everyone, Chris Christie, they're all going after number two. Well, I think the the logic behind that, Brian, is that, uh, A, they're afraid to go after Trump, uh, but B, they... I think the Republicans all correctly see it as it's going to be a two-person race. It's going to be Donald Trump versus somebody else in the end. And they all want to be that somebody else. And the way to do that, of course, is to go after DeSantis because he's now number two, solidly number two. So they, in order to, to have a chance to win, they have to knock him out. I think they all assume that Trump will be the last opponent standing, and therefore they want to get in a one-on-one with Trump. Now, what they're going to do about that, if, they've, if they're kind of pussyfooting around Trump, if they're not going to criticize Trump, if they're afraid to do that, it's hard for me to see how they're ever going to capture the anti-Trump vote. And so also, Brian, I think that there is a debate among Republicans. What is the size of the Trump vote that can be moved? And I think for a lot of Republicans, uh, they're not sure. I think the DeSantis people have an idea. They have a clear idea, which as I understand it, they believe about 25% of the Trump vote is locked in, meaning roughly a quarter of the Republican vote is locked into Trump. Although Trump is getting 50% in many of these primary polls, they believe uh, half of that or so is soft and can be peeled away with a good argument. I'm not sure what the others think, but I think that's a that's a an acceptable way to approach it at this point. It's somewhere between zero and 50 percent is Donald Trump's core. And what is that core? I think each campaign has to have an idea on that. Right. I I want you to hear from somebody I was hoping never to hear from again, but he's got a book that no one's going to buy out. It's a, a, a novel. James Comey speaking about last week about the right wing just as uh, insane with their conspiracies about the FBI acting against them. This is what the longtime Republicans said, cut nine. It has to be Joe Biden. And, and I'm glad he's willing to serve. It has to be somebody committed to the rule of law, committed to the values of this country. And I, I'm not talking about policy. People can disagree about policy. There are things above those disagreements that all of us should think about the same way. The president must be someone who abides the law in our Constitution. And there's no one else but Joe Biden. Is he, at, is he out of his mind? Does he know what's going on around Joe Biden? The allegations swirling, what we, what we do know and what, what they're working towards? Why would he, is he that oblivious? Uh, Brian, I think he's, James Comey is part of the problem. He's part of the deep state. And the deep state is protecting Joe Biden. I mean, you remember the old J. Edgar uh, Hoover way of doing business? You collect dirt on everybody to protect yourself. In effect, that's what they've done on Joe Biden. They know he's corrupt. They know about the China deals. They all, they all know what Hunter was up to. But by keeping the secrets, they have one on Joe Biden. And I think that that's, what, that's the school that Comey comes out of. Uh, you know, it's a, that's why I call him J. Edgar Comey. 
uh, it's very much the same thing. He has to know Joe Biden is corrupt. He's seen the he's seen the the information just as he knew Donald Trump was innocent. He knows Joe Biden was corrupt. He knew Hillary Clinton was corrupt. Remember with his with his interview on, oh, with Brett Baer when he said he didn't really know who financed the Steele dossier. Just he didn't care. Yeah. Can you believe that? Can anyone believe that? No, and, and the, if that's his explanation, is nuts. That shows you you don't even belong to that. You, don't, you shouldn't have your job. You that's don't right. know and you don't want to know. Yeah, he, look, that's why I think he, he was corrupt. I mean, he played, he played that game, that insider game. That's, what, that's fine for politicians to play the insider game. We shouldn't have law enforcement, certainly the FBI, the CIA, all the intelligence agencies playing that game. When you think back, Brian, to those 51 people who signed that letter uh, that the, uh, the post stories on Hunter Biden's laptop had the smell of Russian disinformation, they're all playing that game. They're playing the insider game. And that is the problem in Washington, is that you have this enormous enormous apparatus of the intelligence, law enforcement, all of it deeply embedded in politics. That, I mean, we saw we never saw it so clearly as when the FBI was spying on Trump. And we saw, I mean, the Durham report that there was no reason to open that case. And they did it anyway. I mean, this is to me, if I could fix one thing in American politics, that would be the thing, because they are such a dead weight on our politics, and such a corrupting influence. And Comey is the is the living example of it. Right. Uh, Michael Goodwin, you write about Kamala Harris being one step away, one fall away from being president, and no one deserves it less. Uh, And no one has proven less that they deserve it. And now she's in charge of AI guardrails. Fantastic. (laughs) We're all doomed. Michael. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, AI, Kamala Harris, doesn't it just sort of fall off your tongue at the same way? Of course they belong together. Absolutely. Uh, Look, I, I, Brian, I think that the, uh, you know, my column about Joe Biden and his falling, I mean, that you, if you watch that fall, there's something wrong with him. He doesn't even, he can't even catch himself, right? I think he got yeah. his arm out there finally, but he trips on his left leg, but his right leg doesn't, doesn't react. It doesn't help. So we know there's something physically wrong with him. We, we've, we've heard him talk. We know there's something missing mentally. The idea that one more banana peel and he steps on it and Kamala Harris is president, I mean, that's terrifying. Uh, but that's, that's really an issue, I think, for the media now to focus on, but also the, the Democratic yeah. Party. They've got to have debates. They've ruled out nope. primary debates. Yeah. And I think if they think they can just hide Joe Biden for the next uh, year or so, year and a half, and make him president, I don't, that worked in 2020. But I don't think right. that's going to work this time. I think Joe Biden needs to be tested. And if the primary debates are not held, then I think he's not going to move the needle with Democrats. I mean, well, there's that's, one that's... poll that only 37 percent of Democrats want gotcha. him to run again. Michael, thanks so much. My good one, New York Post. Appreciate it, Michael.
My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. You got it. one 408 I'll be back with your calls. Don't move. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. And then Brett Baer at the bottom of the hour. This is getting good. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Well, I think it was a missed opportunity. We had nearly a thousand Iowans that were at the state fairgrounds to listen to the candidates that are vying to be the president of the United States. And that was Senator Joni Ernst who had this big cookout for all the candidates and they all showed up about. I'm sorry, that was Kim Reynolds. Uh, But Senator Joni Ernst hosted uh, of course, of Iowa, and at every candidate show up, uh, including perspective, Mike Pence, too, uh, who's going to announce this week, and hopefully I'll have him on, too, uh, but Donald Trump didn't show up, but I know what he means. If I'm Trump and I'm up by 30, 40, do you want to be seen as one of the masses? I get it, and uh, instinctively, Trump is the best at this. That's why I don't think, I don't think he's debating. Unless the rest of the field can close the gap, he sees only downside to debating. Now, if they have a series of really good debates and he's not a part of it and his, his polls start to erode, then he walks on in September, October dramatically, and then maybe it's a smaller feel. Although, it's hard to imagine many people dropping out before January because there's no caucus until January. So you got like four or five months just kind of grinding it out. I mean, if you can't go four or five months before through a couple of debates and last, then this is really... You weren't, you weren't serious at all about doing this. Or, you know, you are not independently wealthy. You needed donors. Donors weren't there. Brett Baer next. Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The way I'm being attacked, uh, Trump has run almost 20 ads. 20 million in ads negative attacking me, um, you know, with, with frivolous and, 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 and false uh, uh, smears. Uh, the corporate press is attacking me more than anybody else. The Democrats are attacking me. They would not do that if they didn't think I was a threat. I mean, if they thought that I wasn't, um, you know, in, in shape to, to really win this thing, they would just be ignoring me. Uh, but they're not. They're coming after me. I'm the one that's taken most of the fire. That is Governor DeSantis with us last hour, uh, joined us on the campaign trail over, I believe he's in Iowa today, with, by, with his whole family over the weekend. So if you feel guilty about working and missing your family, might as well bring them. And they are great assets to have out there, to have a young family, uh, to have a wife who's so savvy in front of the camera, a great anchor, and a, and a golf reporter. And um, the one guy that is jealous of Ron DeSantis, his wife, is Brett Baer. So Brett is stuck in this backwards job at special report on Fox News until a golf reporting position opens up on the Golf Channel. And that is that is your second dream job. Am I right? <laughs> Maybe. Would you love Maybe doing that every career. day, Brett? I would, actually. It'd be pretty fun. But uh, I think Jim Nance and Trevor, I don't know, man, that's got it cornered right now. I'm going to try to see what I can do to get you on the Golf Channel. Less okay. viewers, more uh, more work. <laughs> All right. Good combination. Hey, uh, uh, Brett, uh, Brett Bear with us now, uh, chief political anchor, Fox News, getting ready to go. Hey, Brett, so we're going to complete. Do you think we're going to complete the list today? Do you think that Sununu will stay out and Christie and Pence get in and that's it? Well, we've got the governor of North Dakota. Oh, that's right. 
he's getting in and people say, you know, I, I don't know if they could name the governor of North Dakota. Um, but the, I think it's possible Sununu gets in. I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's out of the question. I think we're coming to the end. Um, I do think, you know, the, we're going to see essentially a scenario that we saw in 2012. If you remember those debates, there was, always a fight for anybody but Romney. We had Herman Cain and Newt Gingrich, Rick Santorum, and they went back and forth, uh, and then Romney won in the end. Uh, I think that's going to really be an interesting thing with Christie, who, you know, is making no bones about it. He's going to go after the former president uh, aggressively. Yeah, put it this way. He's a prosecutor. He's uh, he's young. He had uh, two terms in a in a very blue state. And if you watch him on Sundays, he's as good as analyst as there is. And he's been very comfortable in all these issues with Trump, against Trump, being honest, calling him as he sees it. But now he's brutal enemies and he cannot commit to supporting the winner if it's Trump uh, for the nomination. Either can Senator Mike Rounds. So that whole thing that the RNC is putting together to get everyone to admit to support the nominee that's not going to get off. That's not going to come off. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, but it's a stipulation for the debate stage. So I, I don't know how it's going to work. You know, Trump refused or limited uh, signing it the, the first time, but he eventually did. I don't know if uh, Christie and everybody is going to work. Sorry, there's helicopters flying over here. No, it's okay. Hey, I want you to hear what Washington Post analyst Dan Ball said, just to get uh, somebody's opinion about how this Republican thing is shaping up. Cut 12. It is his to lose. He's in a, such a dominant position. And, you know, if we were sitting here six months ago, we would not necessarily have said that. He looked coming out of the midterms like he was a damaged uh, candidate. Um, but Governor DeSantis has had some problems in the early stage, and, and the, uh, the former president has been strengthened, <clears throat> in part because of some of the legal action that's gone against him, because it's rallied people around him. And so his base is strong. He has the clearest, uh, the strongest base within the party. So, I mean, that's somebody uh, from the Washington Post. So far, his numbers are really strong, but he could be looking at two more indictments. Yeah, I think, you know, listen, his numbers are strong, and we point that out all the time, that he has double-digit leads, sometimes, you know, 20, 30 points. Um, but, you know, you look at someplace like Iowa, I think the last poll had him up 10, and which is why you're going to see these candidates focus on these early states. You're going to see Pence, essentially, with a condo in Des Moines. You're going to see DeSantis there as well. You're going to see Christie parking at New Hampshire. That's where his... His announcement's going to be uh, tomorrow, and uh, he'll be on special report on Wednesday. But, and then you're going to have Pence, who will make his announcement and be in Iowa nonstop. Uh, I think that that's how they see the springboard uh, to changing or creating vulnerability with the former president. And the other thing that they don't talk about a lot, but obviously their campaign staff does, is the potential legal action that perhaps is more serious than the first two efforts or swings at it. Yeah, I guess we'll see what's going to happen. But right now, Donald Trump did not go to Joni Ernst's big uh, big roast over the weekend. Everybody else did. And he's probably, or so far, this camp says he's not going to debate. He's like, I have a big lead. Why should I? So, so unless somebody can close the gap and convince him that it's real and the polls are to be counted uh, and he'll benefit from it, he feels as though he's above the fray. So why be in the fray? Yeah, I think 
that works right now. Uh, I'm not sure by the time we get to debates in August whether the backyard light, you know, bug light uh, that attracts everybody that's in presidential politics uh, won't drag him into. But we'll see. Right. Uh, the big thing today, James Comey, uh, James Comer is going to be going into a skiff, uh, Senator Grassley as well, and uh, and Jamie Raskin, and they got to get a chance to look at this 1023 form, out which is evidently testimony that shows this person believes that they have witnessed Joe Biden as vice president getting $5 million reportedly uh, in a bribe. Here's what Corey Mills, the uh, former special operator, now congressman from Florida, had to say this morning. Cut 24. I truly believe that they will. And uh, Chairman Comer has said multiple times, you know, when he went in and talked to Secretary Yellen about the bank files and the things that were actually going on, he was told he wouldn't find anything. What he actually found with the oversight committee was a series, a spider web of LLCs that they were routing and laundering money through. And these were individuals who were actually within the Biden family, about five members who had already received almost $5 million to get foreign policy plays for then Vice President Biden. This is obviously showing the corruption. And he thinks this exposure will lead there. But there's many more steps to this, isn't there? Because there's redactions. Yeah, I think this is the early stages. Uh, we don't have all the facts yet, but clearly Comer's putting in a lot of time. He spends a lot of time on TV talking about it. Um, and we'll see if, you know, it, it delivers like they say it's going to deliver. Obviously, there are there are nuggets here that are leading to uh, a lot of questions uh, whether it leads to anything significant crime-wise, uh, we'll have to see. Last thing, uh, Brett, let's talk about China. We know about the uh, the fighter jet that intercepted got within uh, 400 feet of ours. The destroyer got uh, very close to ours in the Taiwan Strait. We see that there was some raid on a military base in Alaska. And that is just off the top of my head of different confrontations. China has gone out of their way uh, to to face us, face off with us. Here's what Senator Tom Cotton uh, says is the reason this is happening. Cut 26. Well, Biden administration officials should stop chasing after their Chinese communist counterparts like love-struck teenagers. It's embarrassing and it's pathetic. In fact, it projects weakness to China. It encourages them to do things like buzz our aircraft or come within a few hundred yards of our ships. It encourages them to send, send spy balloons floating all across America. Reducing those terrorists would send the same message. Because he pointed out, our Secretary of Defense keeps asking for a dialogue. It's unfortunate they're not. Uh, William Burns showed up in Beijing anyway. We don't know what he was doing there, the CIA director. But the, the lack of toughness is getting us nothing but more aggression. Don't you think they should try a plan B? Yeah, I mean, listen, there's a lot um, that they could be doing differently. And and Cotton really hits on what looked like a vulnerability of, of chasing around. I mean, you had the defense secretary wanting to have a meeting on the side of a conference and getting, you know, the Heisman Award from the Chinese uh, stiff arm. I think you've got calls that haven't been answered. Um, it's, you know, significant, and it does – project weakness. The question is whether they're going to pull the levers and China can be vulnerable in different places. Uh, they haven't done that yet. They haven't. Uh, they haven't shown the toughness and Secretary of Defense sounds more like uh, a diplomat than than muscle. And I think that's all they understand. So, uh, Brett, who do you have on today on the panel? You know, today, oh, on the panel, I've got uh, Byron York. I've got, let's see, who else? Amy Walter and uh, Ben Dominich. Okay. And I have uh, the CEO of Chevron on, Mike Worth, to talk about energy and 
and his company. Did he ever get it going in Venezuela? No, and uh, that's one of the questions. Good. Uh, that's who he's told. Go ahead, reinvigorate the oil industry there. And Chevron's like, are you serious? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I haven't heard much. All right, Brett, I'm glad you're back in action. Good to see you. See you, man. Uh, listen, this is Brian Kilmeade Show. When we come back, I'll take your calls, one 408 and I'll finish up with what's on your mind. A lot of people are taking me up on the option of putting the AirPods in and pretending you're doing work at work and writing me instead. Don't move. Want even more, Brian? Download the podcast at com. Every episode, exclusive interviews, on demand. More of Kilmeade coming up. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. One of the reasons why I'm on the show is because of the comments that were made, frankly, on this show, that the only way for a young African-American kid to be successful in this country is to be the exception and not the rule. That is a dangerous, offensive, disgusting message to send to our young people today, that the only way to succeed is by being the exception. So that's Tim Scott uh, on The View, uh, engaging one-on-one on The View, wearing a shirt and tie, and going into midtown Manhattan from New Hampshire, from Iowa, where he lives in South Carolina, where he works in Washington. Because uh, what they said I thought was really offensive. And I'll give you an idea. This is what was said that got Senator Tim Scott on The View. And I think this is going to be great for him because I don't think you're going to be able to outspeak him or outtalk him. And the thing is, his real-life story is real, and there are a lot of people like him. Uh, here is the exchange cut for. He's one of these guys who, you know, he's like Clarence Thomas, black Republican who believes in pulling yourself by your bootstraps, rather than, to me, understanding the systemic racism that African Americans face in this country and other minorities. He doesn't get it, neither does uh, Clarence. Right. And that's why they're Republicans. One of the issues that Tim Scott um, has is that he seems to think because I made it, everyone can make it. Ignoring, again, the fact that he is the exception and not the rule. And until he is I, the rule, he has, then he can stop talking about systemic racism. So there you go. You heard what he said. That was his response. And let's see how it plays out. They're going to be playing clips from the old time. And here's who's good about it. He is going to be in the eye of the storm. And that's what he needs. He needs the publicity around him. He needs people to talk about him. He needs people to criticize him because with the criticism and with the challenges come more publicity, more interest than other candidates criticize him, praise him. People like Trey Gowdy that know him and people like Senator uh, Langford that works with him, they'll talk about him. And next thing you know, Tim Scott, instead of being the single single digit guy, all of a sudden is now in the forefront of the conversation. Look how different he is. I think that's what Nikki Haley's doing by going on CNN yesterday kind of hoping for a challenge. And she did get one when it came to abortion. It was kind of interesting. She came, she was asked about this, uh, about abortion. She said, why don't you ask Joe Biden, why, what does he say, 36 weeks, 30, 10, uh, 38 weeks? Uh, why, did, why didn't we find out? How come Kamala Harris and Joe Biden never asked about that? And that's a good comeback. And I think that that's one thing that's getting a little bit of play. But in terms of who's going to win this and who's up for this, 
Reince Priebus, who, by the way, was unceremoniously fired as chief of staff by President Trump. This is what he said about so far what he's seen from Governor DeSantis, cut 10. The first thing all of these candidates have to look at is, can I win? And, and, and they're looking at three things. Number one, they're looking at Joe Biden, and they see ultimately he's weak and he can be beat. The second thing all these other candidates are looking at is, isn't necessarily Donald Trump, it's Ron DeSantis. And they're seeing Governor DeSantis as beatable in Iowa. Uh, and the last thing that they're hoping for is that somehow or another something unforeseen is going to happen and somehow Donald Trump is going to disqualify himself through some unforeseen thing. Well, it wouldn't be disqualifying himself. It would probably be one of these court cases. And what we saw after Alvin Bragg, I mean, it just gave him rocket fuel. James, listen, WLAD in Utah, in Connecticut. Hey, James. Hi. Hey, I uh, just wanted to comment that I noticed that uh, Chris Christie is trying to get into that debate, but the RNC changed the individual donor, donor qualification to some large 46,000 number or so. But he was interested in going after Trump in the debate specifically about the insurrection. And I just wanted to comment that as a liberal Democrat, my, my hope is that Trump will be the nominee because I believe he's unelectable. And if he's not the nominee, I predict he will run independently and derail whoever they put up. And that Biden, again, the 900-year-old man, will – Defeat. I, DeSantis with a six-week abortion ban. That's not. He's not going to get elected. So my hope is that uh, that Trump will be uh, taken out by Christie or one of these guys. And thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Well, James, a couple of things. I mean, you, your school of thought is not unique. And but I'm not saying you're not smart. But a lot of people don't think he's he's capable of winning. I do think he's capable of winning. But I also that's also pledged on the fact that he'll get better. And he'll hold his fire and we'll be fighting every single thing like like Kaylee McEnany and going after people that normally who are just analysts who he might disagree with. If he keeps his focus on what he would do different than President Biden and still is combative, the same old place, same old guy with the big rallies, do the same thing, only cut out the negatives and make people revisit it. And show more the self-deprecating style than when he came out and said, you know, when I walked down that ramp. Uh, making those little steps. I gave a great speech, but no one was talking. That was probably a mistake. Wore the wrong shoes. Probably a mistake. That type thing. Oh, well, he did his thing at the a couple of years ago. I didn't even see this tape. Someone just sent it to me. He was at CPAC, and he turned around and he said, look at, he looked at himself uh, on the screen. He goes, what a good-looking guy. Look at this thing. I'm trying to, des- so desperate to hide, to hide my bald spot. You shot showing that along with the swagger and the accomplishment. Then that changes things. Possibly. He already got 72 million. Can he get the 72 million plus back? I don't think Joe Biden clearly is going to get 80 million because people have seen him. I mean, he's he's aging before our eyes and we've seen his we've seen what he's done. He's alienated a lot of a lot of Democrats, too. And a lot of people thought he'd be the safe bet, uh, like a Joe Manchin of the White House won't happen. But it's interesting if Joe Manchin knows he's going to lose that Senate seat to Jim Justice. Does that push him into the general? And if he does go into the general under the no labels label, who does he hurt more? I think he clearly hurts the Democrats more. Alex, this on WABC. Hey, Alex. 
Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning, Brian. Thanks for taking the call. Um, so about Trump, I wanted to comment. He's coming out against DeSantis. He kept on coming out about him that he's not loyal to him. Trump helped him win when he became, when he was running for governor. I think that's such crap. It's not fair because uh, politicians, the only loyalty that they should have are to the American people. And if Ron DeSantis thinks that Trump is unelectable in the general election, he doesn't have to say, hey, I'm going to be loyal to President Trump and sacrifice for the American people the 2024 presidential election just so Trump should be able to be the, nomin- the nominee of the Republican party that you know the, the loyalty shouldn't be a factor here. Uh, he agrees with you alex so i just asked him that too and he agrees with you you know it's, it's not a matter of that he think this is his time and he's not doing it for 2028 he wants to do it now so this is the time he thinks he could help the most so he's got to go at it i think it's gonna be fun i i don't think people don't get caught up in the 20 point gap it'll close quick Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.